0: chapter 2 Joel Here we go. In Ephesians 2 in verse 1 Paul starts with you. You Ephesians were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is the doctrine of total depravity in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, see that but God as the great contrast. We're sinners under Satan. God is rich in mercy and love. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God save us by grace through faith? He did it because he's showcasing his grace depths of compassion the riches of his mercy he's showcasing his character i like to say by way of summary that the cross of our savior is the perfect picture of perfect righteousness judging our sin in perfect justice at the same time satisfying god's infinite love how is god expressing his love there god demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross showcases God's love and his righteousness and justice hanging between heaven and earth. And as Abraham said to Isaac in Genesis 22, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. So God the Son and his incarnation is hanging between heaven and earth, taking our penalty And this is so that in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. One thing that's saying is that as good as things are now that you have the Holy Spirit and the word of God and the stability that comes from your spiritual life, you ain't seen nothing yet. Use a little vernacular. We haven't seen anything yet compared to what is coming. And so... That's why Paul in Romans 8, as we've already read, says, I don't compare the sufferings of this present time. Worthy to be compared, the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, our favorite section, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we train the kids. It's memory verse time. This portion of the text we have understood as, therefore, the explanation of God's purpose of self glorification. When God just tells the truth about himself, it glorifies him. God is revealing himself in his love through the salvation work of Christ. And so any claim that we have to our saving ourselves by any works that we do is a contradiction of that project that the sovereign, loving, and righteous God of the universe is actually doing through our salvation. So that's why the explanation for by grace for by grace. It's an explanation that you'll understand the way you as a believer in Jesus Christ interface with works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 do not say Christians don't work. They say that we did not become Christians by our works, but by God's work of grace. It is our faith, not our works. It is not God's faith. It is God's faithfulness. God doesn't believe in you. You believe in him. God doesn't believe for you. No one can. If anyone could believe me, I would do it for you. I love you. I want you to have all the riches that come from trusting in what God has said. God's pattern, though, is individuals are responsible to trust him. And for by grace are ye saved through faith. God's grace calls for your faith. And this is something we must do. This is why the apostle Paul and Silas said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and your house. He didn't say sit tight, pray for mercy. And maybe God will magically force you to believe. He says, believe what must I do to be saved? You must believe now, theologically the systems want to account for why people believe. We don't have it in Ephesians 2. We don't have it in Ephesians 1. I am contending the text isn't really worried with that interesting theological question of why we believe. We do have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're told in 1 John. Holy Spirit convicts of sin, uh, righteousness, John um, 16, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There is a conviction that God is doing. There is a calling through the gospel. But let's just do exegesis. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, what God is actually teaching through what Paul says is that if you and I claim any part of our salvation, that we've earned it or deserved it in any way that we have merited it, then we have shut down the project that salvation is in our thinking. We have misunderstood the whole point. The point is that God is not showcasing our faithfulness He's showcasing his kindness and mercy to us who are sinners. And so it's all about God. It's all about God. And that interest people have in making certain that it's all about God is one reason they have said that people don't actually believe. But no, we do. It's by grace through faith. And that's not God's faithfulness. That's our believing. And that not from yourselves, This salvation by grace through faith is from God. It is not. It is a gift from God. And I've, I've given you a little bit of a paraphrase here to bring out the sense of what Paul is doing in the Greek. It says, for by grace, the instrumental dative of grace is that it's, it's how God is doing it. It's the instrument God is using. For by grace, you are having been saved. That is not good English, but it is the perfect paraphrastic instruction. Let me point it out right here in the Greek text. It says, esta, that's the present tense of to be, you plural are being, you are something. And then he has the, passive, sorry, the perfect passive from sozo as a, as a participle that completes the thought of the verb. And that's called a paraphrastic instruction. You don't need to know what the grammarians have said. That's called. You need to know this is a strange thing. What's being said in Greek. It's already been said in verse five. And here he says it again in verse eight, what he's saying is that you are experiencing this work that is completed in the past with ongoing and eternal results. And you don't save yourself, it's passive. You're being saved. There's a sense in which I am saved. I have been saved in the past. There's a sense in which I'm being saved. There's a sense in which I will be saved as the word sozo is used through the scriptures. And most of the time, this word saved or salvation is not talking about what's already true in terms of our standing with God and deliverance from the lake of fire. Most of the time, it's talking about what he's doing now. For by grace, are you having been saved through faith? Or we'll just say, are you saved through faith? And that not from yourselves. What is the that? I recently heard a Reformed theologian teach something that cannot be true in Greek. It absolutely cannot be true that the faith is what he's talking about, that the faith is from God. It can't be in grammar because faith, Pistis, is a different gender than the pronoun that. Greek doesn't do that. If it does, it's breaking the rules. It's not good grammar. It's like me saying... Um, about one of you gentlemen, what does she think? We don't really do that if we know a little bit of English. Paul doesn't do that in Greek, the, the pronouns um, agree. But here's the other problem. Okay, so it means salvation. It can't mean salvation either. You know why? I mean, that's what I wanted it to mean. The salvation is from God. It's not salvation because that's a different gender than the pronoun. You have a neuter pronoun. There's no neuter referent. It has to be the previous clause. And here's what this means. For by grace are ye saved through, through faith. The salvation by grace through faith is a gift from God. The whole clause. Salvation by grace through faith is a gift from God. And that gift of salvation by grace through faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. So that as a result of this, no one can boast. The result of by grace through faith salvation is that we cannot boast. And the reason he's talking about this is because of verse seven, because the reason God did all this saving work in verses four, five, and six is so that he might demonstrate the surpassing riches of his grace and mercy toward us. And so when we have a boast, we're encroaching on God's glory. Do you know what you call it when you give something to the creation, what only belongs to the creator? I call it idolatry. I think it's idolatry. And this is the problem of all the alternatives to simple faith in Christ. Believing in Jesus Christ is not a work. It's not a work. If you believe in Christ, it is not a contradiction of grace from God. It is the only thing you can do that is no credit to you. And I'll go back to the Hebrew on this. Amon in Hebrew to believe is really to be faithful. And it means God is faithful. It's an attribute of God, faithfulness, amon, in the nifal stem. What we do with God, we use the hifil stem, the causative stem. We cause him to be faithful. Pardon the grammatical explanation you're not causing God to be anything. You're recognizing his faithfulness. That's where the idea of amon, trust, amen, comes from. You are simply acknowledging the faithfulness, the trustworthiness, the, the salvation of the other. To say that this is somehow you get credit if you do it and God doesn't do it for you or something, that's just, that's philosophy. That is bad mathematics. Let me prove to you from everyone's favorite passage that faith and works are not the same thing. In James chapter two, those who think that James is talking about whether someone goes to heaven, and I don't, but those who do will say that if you don't have works, then your faith is dead. And I will show you my faith by my works. If you're using works to demonstrate faith, then works and faith cannot be the same thing. It's impossible this passage makes it impossible as well. In fact, I believe that the grace and works distinction is center stage right here, because if you are working to save yourself, and I mean working hard not to sin, working hard to feel bad about your sins, if your gospel presentation is, you need to deal with your sin in any way, And it isn't that Jesus Christ has taken your sin on himself and you need to trust in him. If it's something besides faith in him and his work, then it is inviting the sinner to do some sort of dead work for his salvation. And if they believe that they need to do that, now they need to repent of the self-righteousness of adding to the work of Christ. Let's talk about repentance or the change of mind at the point of faith in Christ. Any claim that I have to righteousness, to goodness, to good works, to dealing with my sin, anything that I have that says I have somehow helped out besides simply opening the hand of faith and receiving the gift that God alone gives through his son is a contradiction of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is from God. I had a friend say, well, because of our emphasis on the sovereignty of God, we conclude that even if you add works, then that's okay, as the reformed tradition will do. We add works to the gospel and say, you have to commit your life, you have to do all these things. Because as Calvin said, and he's the one that coined this phrase, we're saved by by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That you have to work. And so they backload the gospel with works to see if someone really is a believer. That's a reformed philosophical theological construct. It's not the text. It is adding discipleship of believers needing to grow and be sanctified in their experience to the transaction that happens as an imputation when you first believe. And it's just, it's just theological summary that doesn't benefit from exegesis of the actual text. Nevertheless, understand this whole thing, salvation by grace through faith is a gift from God. It is not our works. You're not going to reason your way to it. God is going to give you this gift. And I believe even the ability to believe I didn't say the exercise of faith. I said the ability to believe is a grace gift. To whom does he give the gift? That's where the theologians want to argue. Do you believe in Christ? Are you a believer in Christ? Yeah. Look at all you elect people. How do I know you're believers? There's no such thing as a non, an unbelieving elect person in the Bible. You don't find them. Elect are always believers. Believers are always elect. As far as we're concerned, we figured out who we are. Oh, I'm not, I'm not really, really sure if I'm elect because I'm not doing the works. Wait just a second. Where in the Bible does it say to check yourself to see if you have eternal life? Well, 1 John. 1 John says that, that then you'll know you have the life. I thought it said, if I have the son, I have the life. Well, but it also says, yeah, it also says that you check yourself, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you check yourself to see if you're in the faith. This is talking about believers are we walking as we're supposed to? See, what I'm trying to ask you is, do you understand that this is a presentation of something that God does and is doing and has done? And there's a sense where it's already complete. There's a sense where you're walking uh, and living out your salvation. And, And so let me close my theological musings down with this last thought. If you and I go to verse 10 And we're not yet a new creation in Christ. That's what I'm talking about. Conversion or the new birth or becoming a believer or the first moment that you trusted in Christ. If you are not created new in Christ and you're in verse 10 and you're trying to walk in the works that God prepared for you, then this doesn't apply to you. Verse 10 is absolutely has nothing to do with a non-believer. It has nothing to do with someone that is not regenerate. You see what I'm saying? He's talking to Christians and he's saying, You are now, because of what happened in the past, having been saved by grace through faith. And that salvation by grace through faith is not of yourselves, is not from you. It's a, a gift from God. He's the source, and it's a gift. In case we didn't catch grace, gift. Not as a result, not as a sor- from source in your works. So and the result is that no one can brag about this. That would contradict the whole point of verse 7. So how, how do Christians relate to works? What, what about the good works that we're called to do? What about the stuff that, uh, for example, uh, the gospel according to Jesus? No, 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 you've gotta give your life to Jesus. You have to submit everything to Jesus. All the discipleship stuff Jesus teaches in Matthew to Christians. Matthew is written to, believer, to a believing Jewish audience, I'm absolutely certain, 65, 55, 65 AD on the earliest. You have a charisma, a proclamation of Jesus Christ among the apostles and prophets for 30 years before Matthew is written. Who is it written for? Oh, it's a Jewish readership. Matthew is not written to tell people to come to Jesus. It's to tell Christians who have come to Jesus and are Jews and are exiled from their community, to tell them, What is the connection between the Messiah of the Old Testament and Jesus who has come whom we trusted? How does he fulfill what has been promised and what are we to expect? It is in part an explanation on how Israel rejected the kingdom and it's been postponed and it is in part a primer on what disciples of Jesus Christ are supposed to do. Every Christian that reads the rich young ruler who bows his head and goes away sad because he had many possessions, every Christian looks at that and is challenged by that verse. Not to say, am I really a believer in Jesus because I've given him everything, but have I understood that because he bought me with his blood, he owns me and everything about me. It challenges believers. It's not an evangelism passage. Now, it is an evangelism passage in the context of the rich young ruler because the man thought he kept the law and he thought he was righteous before God as keeping the law. And he was confused and he had a wrong mindset about God's righteousness and he had to change his mind or repent. The repentance that God called Israel to, and especially the Pharisees and the rulers, where he called them whitewashed tombs and, you know, just filthy dirty sinners. When they thought they were righteous before the law, they had to repent of the self-righteousness that said that they had done the works that were actually written in the law. The law was written to kill us and show us that we need Jesus to suffer for us to pay for our sins. And that's repentance in Matthew. And so that's why the, the but, but I believe absolutely that the, the book of Matthew is written to a Jewish Christian readership and That's why you don't start with Matthew and the claim of discipleship sacrifice to an unbeliever in the Philippian jail. Paul does, what must I do to be saved, says the Roman jailer, the Philippian jailer. Paul says, well, you got to sell all your possessions and give it to the poor in obedience to the Lordship of Jesus. He doesn't say that. Finally, on the rich young ruler and the sacrifice of discipleship, Christians, I'm talking to only Christians. If Jesus came up to you and said, sell everything you own, we've only got about 45 minutes before the plane takes off. I want you to sell everything you own, give all of it to the poor, come with me. Is there anybody in this room, think about this, who wouldn't be like, fire sale, it's all for $5. Who's got $5? Matter of fact, let's go find a poor person that can administer the sale of this. Lord, I'm already done, right? If Jesus wants you to give everything to him, so that you can then get him and follow him and have fellowship with him and, and rapport with him. And I'm talking about like, we're going to the next stop. Are you gonna do it or not? For us, I believe this is what you call a no brainer, right? And that's the, that's the transaction of discipleship. Now let's talk about, you can't physically go and follow Jesus to the next town. We're not going on a hike and a peripatetic discussion where he's gonna teach his disciples and they're gonna miss the point and he's gonna say, uh, Okay, let's try again. As he does with the disciples, you actually have Jesus Christ as your savior and you're supposed to be a disciple who makes disciples of his, not of mine, of his. Have you figured this out that everything you have is his? See, this is a message for Christians. That's why Matthew wrote it, Matthew the apostle. And it is the good news of Jesus Christ and it does apply, I want you to especially see to you. In fact, I think the most of the New Testament Um, challenges that we we think are hard, they're warnings to us. We who have Christ, who have the life. Now, what I'm talking about in terms of discipleship, in terms of giving up all your possessions as, and I mean, God, it's all yours. Use it how you want. My life is yours. My resources are yours. I understand that. Whether we understand that as new believers or not, that's a process of growth, I think. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Just stick with it. You'll get it. But here's what he says. We are his workmanship. He has created us. Poyema means the thing that was poya'od. Poyao is to make or to do. He made you. And I ask the theological question, okay, in what sense did Jesus or God make me? We are God's workmanship. In what sense? I mean, he's got the whole world in his hands. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. What's he talking about? Is he talking about all the people or is he talking about just the Christians? Watch it. We are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus. He's talking about Christians. This is the new birth. This is what's already in the past, aorist participle, it's already happened. You've already been created new in Christ Jesus. And it's a P for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand so that in them we would walk. Now, why in verse seven did God save us? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did he save you in verse 10? Why did he make you new in Christ? Why are you this new workmanship, this new creation in Christ? Because he prepared works for you to walk in beforehand. He wants you to walk in them. That's the reason for your salvation as far as we're concerned. Now, see, theologians ask questions the text is often not answering. And so we're not always reasoning from the passage what it's actually teaching. So I ask you, why did God save you? And you could be like, well, he knew that I would, or he didn't have any prior reason. He just chose me arbitrarily or whatever people want to say. It's not even talking about this. It's saying the reason for your salvation is the demonstration of his riches of mercy and glory in ages to come. And you've been saved for works that he prepared beforehand for you to walk in is that enough is that enough i mean i was hoping for some pizza but you just fed me a steak i wanted you to say this was the answer but this is the answer in other words i thought we were going to go play miniature golf but instead we're parasailing I, i i just i wasn't prepared for this event obviously you're not dressed for parasailing but we're going anyway See what I'm saying? We, we ask the passage the wrong questions and we use them as proof texts when it's not even talking about what we think it's talking about. This is addressing not the reasons in God's eternal counsels for what he chooses. This is telling you as far as you're concerned, what his objective is, what he's doing with you with your life. Because that's what you need to know. I'm convinced if we could get into the eternal counsels of the infinite knowledge and reasoning of God, we would explode. That's how we're made, not capable of managing that material. So I believe in what's called the creator-creature distinction. God is infinitely distinct from us in every way in terms of his extent. We're limited. God is unlimited. And we call it the via negativa. We say the negative way of explaining God. We can't really get our minds around what it is to be God, so we use a negative, infinite He's not finite. He's not limited. He's not restricted. His love is infinite. His knowledge is infinite. And we're glorifying him, and this is why we're here. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 is a wonderful theological summary, but it is an explanation. So just to make sure we're fully clear on the grace nature of salvation in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, and that is our individual salvation. In verses 11, 22, we talk about our corporate salvation privilege in Jesus Christ, our corporate, what it means to have the whole body of Christ. And this is where Paul starts to talk about the church, about this new organization that did not exist before the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost in, I'm convinced, 33 AD. Not 30 AD, I think 33 AD, uh, the way we've got our calendar set up is when the Lord was crucified and 50 days later, the Holy Spirit descended and started building the church. Now, on the doctrine of the church, I understand that there are multiple types of people in world history who have been believers in the gospel, who have been regenerate, who've been saved. We call them Old Testament saints, and there are different categories of these, but there's always been the same thing, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, that there would be this salvation from our sins, that God would provide himself a sacrifice, that Abraham believed in the Lord, it was credited to him as righteousness, that there is coming a Savior, a Messiah, a Redeemer. The entire Old Testament is messianic. And so before God spoke to Abraham, there were believers, righteous Abel and sinful uh, Cain and righteous Seth. There have been believers ever since Adam and Eve and these people, up until Abraham, are not the church. They're not called the church. In the calling of Abraham to set up a new agency, a new humanity physically generated from his body, not through his concubine, Hagar, but through Sarah, this begins a new nation. And we use that language of ethnicity, a new people that are of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham and Isaac, not Abraham through Ishmael, and then Isaac to Jacob, not through Esau. It's very specific in Genesis. And this nation that comes from the 12 tribes of Israel was made into a state with a constitution in Mount Sinai and God's giving of the law, as you know. And this is not the church. And here's what I'm talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talking about the church the ecclesia the body of Christ says for even as the body is one and yet has many members all the members of the body though they are many are one body so also is Christ is Jesus so he's talking about the body of Christ and in the context spiritual gifts and your your function within the body but then what he says for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. John 7, the Holy Spirit wasn't yet, because, wasn't yet given because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. There is This ministry doesn't exist before Pentecost. So the body is composed of those who have been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's it's not an emotional ecstatic utterance. It's not a special Holy Spirit feeling. It's when you first trust in Christ, the Spirit identifies you with the Son and you're a new creature in Christ. Look what he says. He created us in Christ Jesus. I think Paul's language in Christ is stock language to talk about your unity with Christ that comes through the baptism or identification of the Holy Spirit with Christ. This is the church the origin of dispensationalism as a theological summary is not the preacher of rapture. It's certainly not this made-up story about, um, about an Irish demon-possessed girl and Darby. That's not true. Well, where it comes from is a recognition, is, is an answer to the question, what is the church? what is the church and if it exists as those that are united to Jesus by the baptism of the spirit and the baptism of the spirit didn't start until the day of pentecost when the holy spirit came as Jesus had prophesied the promise of my father then we've understood the beginning historically the time frame where this began and and Paul in Ephesians is getting into this doctrine of the mystery of the church therefore remember that you you Gentile Ephesians, before being the Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision. Actually, they called them prepuces by those called circumcision in the flesh made with hands. The word, let me just real quick, the language here. Called acrobustia. That word does not mean uncircumcision, but that is a nice pair of a nice circumlocution. You no know circumlocution where you talk around it. You know, you talk about your backside instead of how, how else you might describe yourself. Circumlocution. Um, uncircumcision is not the word. This is the word for the physical portion that is circumcised. And so that's what they called people that were Gentiles. It's kind of a racial slur. Remember the story of David and Saul and, hey, I'll let you have my daughter. She so got to go bring me a um, hundred Philistine uh, foreskins. And then David brings 200. That's what we're talking about. They, call, they would call, he says it, those called, uh, legomenoi, those called foreskins by those who are called circumcision, peritome in the flesh made with hands. Why is the Bible so rough? Well, because it's reflective of life and reality and that's what they would say. Now, Paul has Judaizers that follow him around and we've read Galatians and they say, you've got to get surgery and have this portion of your body removed, gentlemen, if you really want Christ. Paul wrote Galatians and say, uh-uh, absolutely not. That is not part of coming to Christ. And you've missed the point, Judaizers. And I think he shuts that down in this passage this way. Remember that you, you were these category of people, these Gentiles that were rejected by Israel and out of the commonwealth of Israel. Remember that you at that time were without Christ, having been alienated from the citizenship of Israel. See, when God called Abraham, it is a demonstration of the rejection of all the peoples of the earth who have again, after the flood, rejected God at Babel. They've all rejected God. He's judged them all. And then he calls one, it starts over. You're alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise, not having hope and without God in the cosmos, in the world, in context. He's been talking about Satan's world system. So you're born enslaved to your sin nature, born enslaved to Satan and separated from Israel. Remember this about yourselves. Now, this is how he begins in talking about the group. And he's going to bring them at the end as one man, one new man in Christ. Watch it from composed of Jew and Gentile. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away before have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The doctrine, the biblical doctrine of reconciliation is you who were far have been brought near. You who are separated from God. I mean, Israel had God as their, as their you know, national God, right? Now we read, read the Old Testament. Israel's far from God in their hearts. The book of Jonah is written as a critique of, of Israel they don't think like God the the book of Jonah is echoed by the Lord Jesus Christ in the parables ending with the the prodigal son you don't think you Israel to think you're so close to God and self righteous you don't think like God at all you're not forgiving our most overquoted passage uh, Isaiah 55 my my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways says the Lord that's an explanation when he says that and the previous clause says that he is forgiving He is abundant in loving kindness and forgiving long suffering. And, and, and that's what he's talking about. He says, my ways aren't your ways. It's a great passage. Memorize it, but learn the reason he said it. See, Israel was close to God by God's design, but they were far away. But now you Gentiles who didn't even have the revelation of God, they didn't have the oracles of the old Testament, you know, they didn't have this as their culture You've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one. Now we start talking about the both and the one. On he made both one. And so we have to supply a word to make sure we understand that word both, both groups, both peoples. Because before there was the circumcision and the uncircumcision, and now both groups are one. Did we just replace Israel with the church? No, we just defined what the church is. It's the one new, as we'll read, one new man in Christ. He made both groups one, and the dividing wall the partition destroyed the enmity in his flesh by exhausting the law of commandments and ordinances so that the two, he would create in himself into one new man with the result of making peace, so that he would reconcile both groups in one body to God through the cross by putting to death the enmity in himself. That's my interlinear translation. Let's look at it. The mystery of the church introduced in verses 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, that's your key language that talks about your position by baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about when he says in Christ. You who before were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, one of the doctrines inherent in the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus is called reconciliation. We were far from God in our sin and our trespasses uh, in the cosmos system. And we've been brought near to God, the father through the blood of Christ. Explanation for Jesus is our peace. What do you mean by that? Paul, how so? Is Jesus our peace? And he's going to answer that question. Who made both groups one? The first thing that makes him our peace is that there was a separation of the circumcision and uncircumcision. Now he's made both into one. That's a construction project he made with me. He made both groups one. And who destroyed destroyed the dividing wall of the partition, which is the enmity in his flesh. Question is the enmity between Jews and Gentiles or between God and Gentiles or between God and sinners? Context, it sounds like it's Jews and Gentiles, but I think the bigger point is that the enmity is between God and sinners. He destroyed the dividing wall of the partition. Some say this has to be something in the temple or is the, some court wall, the court of the Gentiles. And, and this is a separation. It means that there is a separation between these two groups. There is no longer this separation. In the old order, before the Holy Spirit came to start making the church of Jews and eventually included Gentiles in Acts chapter nine and 10 and 11, when, when this started, uh, before, before the Spirit came, you had Old Testament saints, and there were Jews and Gentiles there were Old Testament saints, but they weren't one body. You had Israel and you had Gentiles. And sometimes people would join Israel and become sojourners or you know, Gentile aliens within the Commonwealth of Israel. Uriah the Hittite and people like this, but there's still this ethnic distinction. Paul is saying today, as the Holy Spirit started making Jews into church and then eventually added Gentiles into church, now we are one new agency, one new international body that never existed before. He destroyed the dividing wall, the partition, which is the enmity in his flesh, and that is a destruction project. He made the groups one and he divided the wall. He broke the wall down between the two. That's pretty clear. And how did he do it? How did he do this? By exhausting the law of commandments and ordinances. Katargeo. I translated exhausting. You could translate that word in Greek. It would be legitimate in some context to say set aside, to do away with, to destroy, to invalidate, to render powerless. How did he invalidate, render powerless, destroy? He fulfilled it. He exhausted the commandments and ordinances and their judgment that come through the Mosaic law on all sin, because he paid for our sins on the cross. That's what Colossians is getting at. Our sins are nailed to the cross and all the the ordinances against us are, are addressed by the blood of Christ on the cross. And so this, this is my translation. He's exhausted the way he made one group and the way he destroyed the wall between them is, He exhausted the law of commandments and ordinances so that the two he would create in himself into one new man. Why did he do it? The reason I know to ask why is because we have a so that clause. The reason why he did it is so that he would create in himself, uh, the two he would create in himself into one new man. That's the one new man. That's the church that he's talking about the new organization, the new body, one new man, is as, as the way of describing it. In other words, there used to be this two kinds of people thing, and now there's just two kinds of believer, and now there's one kind of believer. Now, does this mean that people who are born again as believers are no longer Jewish or Gentile? It, it actually doesn't mean that. It means that that distinction is irrelevant to our position in Christ. What about before? Well, the people thought it was relevant and he's dealing with perceptions at least. So the two he would create in in himself into one new man with the result of making peace. Remember he said, Jesus is our peace. The result of this construction project into one new man makes peace. It's probably about Israel and the Gentiles. And why else? So that he and so, there's two so that's, and also so that he would reconcile both groups in one body to God through the cross. So he's made peace between Jew and Gentile in the, in the church. The idea of us separating out, well, I belong to the Jewish church, or I belong to the Gentile church. Oh, no, 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 no. That's a violation of Galatians. That misunderstands the doctrine of the church. And I've had some wonderful Jewish Christian professors really sing this note very loudly. Harold Honer, Jewish Christian wonderful New Testament scholar went to be with the Lord a few years ago. When he was teaching this, he would say, we are the church. I believe that the remnant of Israel is a doctrine throughout the scriptures. The remnant of Israel is the believers who belong to Israel ethnically, genetically. The remnant of Israel. The church was begun from the remnant of Israel in 33 AD the believers that were Jews received the Holy Spirit. The reign of Israel continues in the church, but we are one new man composed of Jew and Gentile because of the work of Christ so that he would create in himself one new man with the result of making peace and so that he would reconcile both groups in one body to God through the cross. So there's a horizontal dimension that he's making peace between the two groups. And there's a vertical dimension where both are reconciled to God, which is, he saves the more important one for the last. This is the complex reasoning Paul is working through. It's the doctrine of the church. The church is the new thing that began at Pentecost where Jews were united to Jesus Christ by the baptism of the spirit. And then that was opened up to the Gentiles. And it follows exactly what we read in Acts 1.8. You're going to go be my witnesses once you receive power. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea, uh, Jerusalem and Judea and expand to Samaria, the half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile, the way they thought of them, Samaritans. And even to the remotest part of the earth, the ministry of Paul, the apostle, to the Gentiles. This is what the church is. Uh, of course any human being that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is united to him through the baptism of the holy spirit and that is more important than if you're jewish or gentile or scythian or barbarian or slave barbarian slave or or uh, free in colossians 3 so that he would reconcile both groups in one body to God through the cross by putting to death the enmity in himself by putting to death the enmity in himself. Now we started with, this is the blood of Christ that brings you near to God, brings you near to each other, the blood of Christ. Can you trace the blood of Christ through this? It starts here in verse 13, the blood of Christ. You've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, the death he died for our sins. For he is our peace who made both groups one, having, uh, who destroyed um, the dividing wall, the partition, which is the enmity in his flesh. He died for our sins on the cross in his flesh. And this death that he died paid for our sins according to the dictates that God had set forth in the law, which showcases God's righteousness. And so he exhausted the law of commandments and ordinances. And it is that he did this through the cross by putting death to enmity in himself. The whole point, the whole point is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death that Jesus died for your sins. It's been popular in recent years to say things like, well, the the summary of the gospel is um, pray for mercy and God will save you. And then you can believe in him or something like that. It's just, that's just philosophy. Um, I can show you the reasoning process that gets there, but it's not biblical reasoning process. Um, It's also popular, one one, uh, school of thought has been that if you just believe that Jesus gives you life, because all through the Gospel of John, it says, believe and live, believe and live, believe and live. So somehow in someone's mind, it got confused that the life that he gives when you believe in him as your savior from your sins and died died on the cross and rose from the dead, that if you, that that the object of, the the results of faith that you receive his eternal life becomes the object of faith. So you believe in Christ giving you life crazy ideas come out of this. Like if you don't believe in eternal security, then you don't really have it. Ever heard that? If you didn't believe so that you are sure that you have eternal life and eternal security, then you didn't really believe in the gospel. Well, that's mistaking the result of your faith for the object of faith. The faith is in Christ and his work. See what I'm saying? But it's a lot, humans do theology. We all do theology and we we come up with all kinds of crazy things. Here's my favorite human reasoning thing. Y'all will all agree with this, right? My favorite thing to beat up on with human reasoning is if God is omniscient, he knows everything. He knows what I need. He knows what I want. He knows what I'm struggling with. So what am I about to say? So why should we pray? Because he already knows. And so it seems like, well, Lord, all the stuff, you know, amen. Right? That's called sophomoric theological reasoning. God does know all the knowable. He does know everything you're dealing with. He does know all that you're going through. And he wants you because he's told you to talk to him about it and to pray and to make your request with thanksgiving. And so how does that work? If he already knows, why do I have to tell him? Because partly what you're doing is not informing him. He does know but he wants you to talk to him about it. And how do you keep those things together? Revelation, God said it. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all the noble. Before we even ask, he'll answer, right? So so just let's cool it on theology. We can make all kinds of bad conclusions with our little theological reasoning. It's a fun thing to do. Some people have it as a hobby. In some cases, they'd be better served just to play video games. But anyway, 1974. Ever see this book? Anybody have this book at home? Of course you don't. This is a southern thing. It's really cool. This is awesome. All right. It's called Children's Book of Inspiring Bible Stories. The Children's Book, of, isn't that a great title? Children's Book of Inspiring Bible Stories. Somebody give me a name that you think might have published this and, and all the Baptists bought it. Southern Baptist bought it in the uh, mid-70s. Give me a name that might be responsible for leading the Baptists uh, to, to put this in front of their kids. Almost, very close. He's like the front man. Nope. I'll give you a hint. No, the Baptists. Think Virginia. Think, think getting Reagan elected. How did Reagan get elected? Yeah, this is Falwell Ministries. All right, here we go. I don't have the, I can't find mine. I had to buy one on eBay. I had one that had an inscription from my grandmother. I was born in 76, and this was published in 1974. Isn't that cool? I learned to look at pictures from looking at this. I would look at boy, pictures, boy, as a little kid. I would stack up the, the, the picture books by my bed when it was nap time and just stare at pictures and not take my nap. But anyway, my grandmother had this wonderful inscription, and I'm still looking for that um, book. And it, if y'all ever run across might I left it up here or something, but I had to go get another one on eBay. And um, listen to what Dr. Jerry Falwell says here. Leading your little one to Christ. Children are a heritage of the Lord and God has promised to bless the children of saved parents. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember that his commandments to do them. Psalm 103:17 17 through 18. God has made a promise to parents who are saved keep his covenant, that's what he means. He thinks saved means, and obedient, remember his commandments. Just being a professing Christian does not necessarily guarantee salvation to your children. You must be genuinely saved and consistently obedient to the Lord yourself because your children are learning about God from your example, as well as your words. God's gift of righteousness can be passed on to your children through your faithful witness and godly example. This is how he opens this with a little letter of encouragement. And um, he talks about the plan of salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but by him. We must believe that Jesus is our Savior. It is, he has a little picture of imputation. Why am I doing this? I, I got a point. Just, just stick with me. That, that we need God's righteousness, and we receive it by faith, and we become born again. And um, just a really great little summary thing. So I'm a little kid. Can't read. I was born in 76. The Baptists were publishing this thing in 1974. And um, if you're a Southern Baptist kid and you were raised around this, you might have seen this before. But I learned about the concept of death from that. Oh wait, that. I learned about what death is by the picture that they included, written or painted throughout this thing by Carlo Tora. Can't find anything about Carlo Tora except in the 70s. He published a lot of kids uh, uh, illustrations, uh, kind of a romantic, uh, you know, Italian style painter. I learned from this image, not icon, but just this picture about death. What is going on here? I'm a little bitty kid. I was given this at, you know, when I, when I was born, they bought, the, my grandparents bought this for me. So I grew up with this on the shelf and I saw this picture and I was like, what's going on here? And she, my mother explained it to me. This is what I first conceived of as death as a little two, three year old. And the death that Jesus died for my sins in the same conversation. People say, well, you gotta, you know, kids need to grow up and experience some, some garbage before they can really come to faith. It's garbage. That's a garbage thought. Let the little children come to me, says Jesus. Childlike faith, that's all we need to have. But here's what I want to point out the, the man on the cross that you can see that's facing you is not Jesus. And what, what grabs you if, you, if you took some time to examine this image, this photo, I'm sorry, this, uh, this painting from Carlo Tora. you would notice that you see very clearly Mary's face, apparently, the Roman soldier with the spear, probably John, some other disciples. There's some sort of, it uh, looks like maybe uh, the paint that they used for the sign, you've got the hammer, um, you've, got, uh, you've got some other things here. It's really dark. I love the colors in this, in this image, the way he, he colored the sky to, to say, okay, there's this darkness. You can't make a painting of the crucifixion where he paid for your sins because it was so dark, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. God brought a supernatural darkness there at Golgotha, the hill of the skull. But you can't see Jesus in this picture. You can see a kind of a profile. You can see the one who's died for your sins and everyone staring up at him, which makes you a little kid looking at the picture, think about what they're looking at. I think that's a really neat device. I don't like icons. I don't like pictures. I don't like even Jim C- Jesus. Jim, Jim Caviezel as Jesus, I don't like that. I think he did a great job as far as it can be done. But Jesus has a face. You know, he, he's got a real visage. We're going to see it soon enough. And uh, the way you get to do that is that you're absent from a body present with the Lord. Now, this is the first thing that came to me uh, to conceive of death and the death of my savior though, and I really appreciate the way it's presented because it makes me identify with the people looking at the cross, looking at Jesus. I've been haunted by this image for 40 years in a good way. I mean, I love this picture. I've been wanting to figure out a time to show it to you, just as Jesus is being emphasized as the one who went to the cross for us. At the cross, Jesus provided our reconciliation with God so that we could be the church, his body, One new man in Christ composed of both Jew and Gentile, and we could be brought near to the Father. And it is the the cross of Jesus Christ that is always in the back of Paul's mind as his focus. We will never exhaust the riches we have in Jesus Christ at the cross. If we walk in the light as God himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with him, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son... The work at the cross goes on cleansing us from all sin in 1 John 1, 6. You'll never exhaust the riches that you have because of what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. I thought I'd share that as a little aside with you to kind of tell you where I've come from. And um, never read that book. (laughs) Still never read it. All these kids have grown up. I've read portions of it to my kids and then we lost it and I got another. Now I'm gonna read it, but um, it was that image. It was that picture that... uh, that helped me understand what we mean when we say Jesus died for our sins on the cross. See, my mother would say, okay, so David, what happened here is that up above, up above God is looking down on Jesus and he poured out your sins and judged them in him while he was hanging there. And all these people are trusting in him. And that's what we need to do. We trust that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. You see see what I'm saying? You don't need the image. Jesus is placarded. He's hung between heaven and earth as a demonstration but in verses 17 through 19 we'll talk about reconciliation and jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and those who are near see he comes to everybody to the jews that are close to the gentiles far away he comes through the apostle paul to preach to them and and now he's doing that so that through jesus through him we have the access both groups jew and gentile far near and far we have access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to God the Father. Same thing in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, The Holy Spirit has made us one new man. So we have access. Look at it. It's a Trinitarian verse. Through Jesus, we have access in both groups, in one Holy Spirit, the Spirit working in all of us, to God the Father. So then, no longer are you strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. One interpretation is that this brings us into Israel. Well, now Israel. But I don't think that's what he's saying because I think there's a future uh, for God's timeline for Israel. Rather, I think the remnant of Israel is part of the church. And sure, that's complicated. The point is that you are fellow citizens in God's house with the saints, the believers of old. Because you have been built. Now, here is the difference. You've been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Two interpretations, apostles of the New Testament, prophets of the Old Testament, we take the new as the focal, so it's given first, and that's why the sequence apostles and prophets, possibly. The other interpretation is, it's the New Testament apostles and prophets. That's why it's in that sequence. Apostles are higher ranking, prophets have a prophetic gift, but they're not apostles. Um, I think it's probably this is I'm not dogmatic about this but I think it's probably the old and new testament the old testament revelation of the prophets and the new testament of the apostles and he puts the he puts it in reverse order because Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone I don't think this means the top stone in the in the archway as been some have suggested capstone it means cornerstone on the foundation I think archaeology has borne this out the cornerstone of the foundation is the 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 standard it's the first thing you set and it tells you how the building is going to be laid out if you're going to build a square structure when you lay the cornerstone that determines how everything else goes and he is the the linking point between the old and new testaments because you've been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the lord and whom also you're being built together into a dwelling place of god in the spirit this is the church as, as a construction project. That is this new work that God is doing that's built on this superstructure of God's revelation. This new work that God is doing with you. And this is a lot of theology. And again, it can't do justice in a survey of Ephesians in six Sundays. I'd like to spend a month right there. What let me just say we're all a work in progress individually, but it's not just individually. Your growth affects me. My growth affects you because we're part of the same superstructure that's coming together. So this idea of the atomized Christianity of individual responsibility, that's true, without consequences on each other, that's not true. See, that, that's a correction for some of your theology because we, we have a tendency to just make it about, I've got to make my choices, right? But here, your choices impact the way the rest of the organization develops, Obviously, I mean, think about it. So we've got to grow, but it's not just on our own account. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to get the rewards I'm going to get. There's, there's a whole superstructure that God's doing that is beyond uh, your simple, your choices, but it certainly involves them. And so that's an awesome thing to consider. It's in God's wheelhouse. He knows what he's doing. I think this is the most critical doctrine to understand future prophecy. It's the starting place. We've done a lot of eschatology. We're kind of taking a break on the eschatology study to finish Paul's uh, the life of Paul. Just double down on that. But how do we relate to the prophecies of God regarding future Israel, national entity on, in the land? Here's the last thing I want to say. Because of this passage and its awesome Taking everybody together to, so you'll see what the church is today. There's been a tendency to go back and reinterpret what God promised Abraham. That's called amillennialism. It was popularized by Augustine, very, very popular in the Catholic Church and the Reformed Church. They both like him as much as they don't like each other. But if you'll just let the prophetic details stand, God said a land that we know where it is and he said it forever for this people, for this national entity. This doesn't take away from that. This tells you what we are, what the remnant of Israel is and it's an awesome, a higher and a greater thing. Our Father, we thank you for this eternal life, for fellowship that we have through your son, for the privilege of thinking through the church and really going fast through Ephesians 2 to get the big picture of How reconciliation has become more than just our walk with you. It has built us into a new structure, a new work composed of Jew and Gentile. I pray that you would strengthen us to understand and function within the doctrine of the universal church. Don't let us be um, hindrances, Father, to your project. We know you're going to get your job done however you want. Let us be willing participants and build us uh, individually and collectively so that we can glorify you according to your purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.